Well, today we are halfway through the book of Ephesians. I know we're just flying through the book of Ephesians, but after 10 weeks, we've made it through three chapters. So we're flying. Everybody just hold on, but we're at the halfway mark. As you know, it's a letter to a young church in a place called Ephesus. It contains six chapters, and the first three chapters are all about what Christ has done for us, who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ. And the back three chapters are all about how we should live in light of all that Christ has done for us. Paul always, always, always points back to the cross. Paul doesn't say you should live this way because the other way is stupid. Paul says you should live this way because of what Jesus did on the cross. This is the only appropriate response. Paul is the model for us of saying everything we do should be motivated by the cross. You stop looking at the cross, you stop looking at Jesus, you lose the reason for trying to do anything in the Bible. It's all motivated by Christ. We're compelled by the love that he's shown us. Infants learn how to sit before they learn how to walk. They learn how to sit before they learn how to walk. My youngest child, uh, Ezra, middle name Victorious, Ezra Victorious, has just started walking right now, and he learned how to sit first. He learned how to sit, how to just balance himself without just falling over. And he started walking, and it's one of the coolest things ever. I love seeing them learn how to walk. And Ezra is our fifth child, so we've made it past the insecure parenting stage where they're thinking, my child has to walk by the time they're eight months or they're not going to be the smartest child ever to live and walk the face of the earth. It's like they they walk when they walk, man. (laughs) And the other thing we've learned is as soon as they can walk, they can reach more stuff that they're not supposed to be touching anyway. So he, he loves to walk up to the computer. He can put his hand up. He can't even see the keyboard on the computer, but he can feel the buttons, and he'll just start pushing buttons. I'll come and sit down. I'll be like, where, where did all the files on the desktop go? You know, and you realize he just walks up and starts doing this. But he learns how to sit before he learns how to walk. And if you try to get them to walk before they even know how to sit, you're going to be in for a lot of frustration, a lot of frustration. The same is true for the Christian life. Before you try to walk it out, you need to learn how to sit in Christ. To say it another way, you need to learn where you are seated in Christ. Scripture says we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. In chapters 1 through 3, which are all about where we sit in Christ, Paul told us we were adopted into God's family, elected before the foundation of the world, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and sealed with the Holy Spirit, all while we were dead in our sins. All of that. First three chapters are not about anything that we've done or that we are to do. They're just about what Christ has done for us. And when you get that, something inside of you says, wow, Jesus did all that for me? And if you've never had that reaction, I promise you have not yet experienced the love of Christ. You have not experienced the love of Christ. And you shouldn't be trying to even walk yet because you haven't experienced his love. Perhaps the most profound truth about the love of God is this. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more than he loves you right now. Nothing. Let that sink in. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more then he loves you right now. If you are actively sinning right now, stopping that will not even make God love you more than he loves you right now. And maybe you've been a a good person most of your life. Maybe you haven't hit a bottom or a dark period. But that truth about the love of Christ becomes profound when you're in a dark period and you have a revelation that man, there's some serious darkness in me. I can't believe I'm here. I never thought I'd be this low. And in that moment, when it hits you, there's nothing I can do to make him love me more than he loves me right now. That is profound. That is profound. The love of God. You, you mean, you, you'll still love me if I don't read my Bible? You, you'll still love me if I don't tithe? 
You'll still love me if I skip church. Your, your love is really that unconditional. It is. His love is that unconditional. And when, when you encounter that sort of love, the unconditional love of Christ, all of the things related to walking out the Christian life, stop being have-tos and become get-tos. Everything changes. Encountering the love of Christ makes the Christian life a get-to and not a have-to. We get to build a relationship with Jesus through time in his word, through time in prayer. We get to spend time in worship. We get to trust him with our finances. We get to know him. These aren't have-tos. Because why wouldn't you love somebody and do anything for them when they've loved you more than anybody ever has or anybody ever will? Why wouldn't you want to do what they ask? Why wouldn't you want to seek them? Why wouldn't you want to know them? None of the aspects of the Christian life are done to earn the love of God. They're all done in response to the love of God. That is one of the most important concepts of our entire faith. Nothing we do is to earn the love of God. Before we're saved or after, everything we do is in response to the love of God in the Christian life. But if you try and walk before you learned how to sit, if you try and live out the Christian life without really understanding what Christ has done for you and being overwhelmed by his love, the Christian life becomes dead, becomes legalistic, becomes rules-based, it becomes religious, becomes a set of burdensome have-tos. That was the situation in Israel when Jesus walked the earth all relationship with, with God had pretty much dried up. Nobody really had a relationship with him. It had all become a set of rules, and the religious authorities were constantly dreaming up new rules, new things that people could do. And if, if you kept all these rules, then you'd have a relationship with God. And in this environment, Jesus said this. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. What he's saying is, come to me, when trying to know God feels burdensome. Come to me when your faith feels like it's weighing you down, like it's work. Jesus said, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. My burden is light. As the pastor of this church, I am not primarily concerned with behavior modification. I am not here to try and convince you to behave like a better Christian, to act like a better Christian. It is my goal for us to see and know and encounter Jesus Christ consistently, repeatedly, in a profound way. Everything flows out of knowing him, seeing him, seeing him revealed. The more of Jesus you see, the more overwhelmed you are by his extravagant love, and the more you want him, the more you want to be like him. Sin starts becoming bitter all by itself, not without me shoving some conviction down your throat. Sin just starts becoming bitter as you spend more time with Jesus because the Holy Spirit exposes it for what it really is. Once what? What once was sweet suddenly becomes bitter. And you begin to crave Christ and more of him. And things begin to change in your life. And it all flows out of a revelation of Jesus. It's not a burden. It's not a sacrifice to trade dirt for diamonds. It's not. It's not hard to trade death for life. That's not a sacrifice. It's not something you have to consider and really think about. Nothing Christ asks of us is a burden when we're motivated by his love. Nothing, nothing. I have been so challenged by the words of Jesus in Matthew because here's what I've realized. The implication of what Jesus is saying is that the Christian life can be hard, but it should never be burdensome. You should never feel weighed down. Jesus is saying there is nothing that I've asked you to do that involves you being weighed down and burdened. There is nothing I'll ever ask you to do 
that requires you to live that way. And we're all thinking right now, how, how can that be true? Because there are things in my life that I have done out of obedience to Christ and his word, and I have felt the burden of trying to live that out. I felt the weight. In Peter, it says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And the truth is that there are burdens that come with following Christ. But what Jesus wants us to do is to give them back to him. To trust him with those burdens. Maybe for you, there's an area that you're just struggling to trust Christ in. What we're talking about is we're talking about getting up in the morning and saying, God, I give this to you. Getting on your face before God and saying, this is in your hands. You've got this. And I will not act as though this all depends on me. Because my very breath depends on you. And if I take this burden upon me, what I'm saying is that this is all me. This is all me. Make or break. If this thing happens, it's going to be because of what I did. If this thing fails, it's going to be because of what I did. Where's God in that? Where's God in that? And I've been so convicted personally by the truth of just, man, what, what is weighing me down in my life? With 100% consistency, it is the things that I have not given to God. The things where I have decided I am God. Not in an intentionally arrogant way, but all my actions are saying, I believe this begins and ends with me. And I've decided that I'm everything in this process. When what God says is, give it, give it to me. Trust it with me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You can have joy in the most trying of circumstances when you realize this belongs to God. This belongs to God. All we're called to do is be obedient and then enjoy the fact that God is blessed by our obedience. That's it. That's it. That's it. We should never be burdened by anything God asks us to do. If you try and change the behavior before you've had a relationship and a revelation of Christ, you will most likely fail to change the behavior in your life. Because you're trying to change the behavior in your life. And the Holy Spirit is stronger than you are. You'll become frustrated, you'll become bitter. It all starts with knowing Jesus. Parents, it, if we teach our kids one thing, one thing, let it be that God loves them. That is the most important thing in the world. If there's one thing your kids need to know more than anything, it's that God loves them. Our kids, we have the phrase, we always say, how much do we love you? And they always say, no matter what. We say, how much does God love you? No matter what. And the reason we do that, I've shared this before, is because I know one day my kids are going to blow it spectacularly. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. And when they do, I'm going to say, how much do I love you? And they'll say, no matter what. I'll say, how much does God love you? I'll say, no matter what. And we'll get to say, that's still true. That's still true. Behavior flows out of relationship with Christ and scripture says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Just this week, I, I was thinking about how when, when we mess up, when we really blow it epically in our lives and we, we fall down, Satan is always there to say, stay there. That's where you belong. Just stay down. Don't get up. Jesus is the one saying, let's go. Let's get up. Let's get up. Let's get up. And sometimes even as believers or, or, or parents, sometimes we think, no, no, you know, that person needs to stay down there a while and think about what they've done. There is nothing more convicting than having somebody pick you right up and say, let's go. The most horrible feeling I think I've ever had in my life is when I just blew it in my life spectacularly. I was 16, and my parents didn't punish me. They didn't punish me at all. They didn't say a word. And all they essentially said is, decide who you want to be. Decide who you want to be. 
I was like, what? You know you're not going to punish me? Can't you, like, punch me in the face? I'd feel much better if you did. Come on, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. I grabbed the hand and, you know, nothing, nothing. Why? Because the kindness of God leads us to repentance. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. As believers, when another one of us stumbles, I want to encourage you, pick them up right away. Pick them up right away. Say, let's go. Because that sort of love, that sort of forgiveness breaks a hard heart. You know what a hard heart expects when they mess up? They expect judgment. They expect condemnation. That's what they expect. That's what they're hardened for. When they get grace and they get forgiveness, that that is not expected. That breaks a hard, hard heart. It breaks a hard heart. It really does. Conviction isn't our job. It's the job of the Holy Spirit. And he will do it. He'll, he'll do a much better job than we can. I promise. Parents, if your kids don't understand how much God loves them, they'll rebel and they'll act out. And if they're already doing that, let me encourage you with this. It is the love of God that will lead them to repentance. Being overwhelmed by the love of God. You can't guilt trip them back into the kingdom of God. You know, you love them back. That's what Jesus does. Uh, Let me say this before we move on. If you ever find yourself being disconnected from God, go get alone, read the first three chapters of Ephesians in one flowing section. It's all about how much God loves you and what he's done for you. I sat in my room and I read it out loud on Friday. You will not make it through those three chapters without being broken by the Holy Spirit. Read them out loud. If you ever feel lost, you ever feel disconnected from God, go there. First three chapters of Ephesians, read them out loud. It's just thing after thing after thing that God has done for us. He's done this, he's done this, he's done this, he's done this, he's done this. And it just begins to overwhelm you. And you realize that all of those statements are unconditional facts. They're not related to anything we've done. Anything we've done. It's amazing. So here we are at the halfway mark through Ephesians and we've been overwhelmed by the love of God in the first three chapters. Now it's time to talk about how we walk out our faith. And in these back three chapters, Paul is going to tell us to walk in four different ways. First, he tells us to walk in unity. You can see the scripture references there. Next, he tells us to walk in purity. Third, he tells us to walk in harmony. And finally, he tells us to walk in victory. So let's go in. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. And I want to let you know, anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, it's good to stop and ask what it's there for. Huge pointer for reading the Word of God. Therefore, what's it there for? In this case, what Paul is saying, he's saying in light of everything we've talked about up to this point, in light of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, in light of all of that, because of all of that, therefore, in light of all of that, he goes on and says, I beseech, I encourage, I exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You want to underline that in your Bibles. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. What a verse. That's the whole Christian life. How do you walk? Walk worthy of the calling. Walk worthy of the calling. We've talked about this key idea of the faith that that everything we do in relation to Jesus is a response to what he's done for us. Scripture says in 1 John 4, 19, this is love that he first loved us. He called us. We don't love Jesus so that he'll love us. We love Jesus because he first loved us. Because he first loved us. Philippians 1.27 says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says, walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Colossians 1 says, walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. The core idea is that you and I were not asked to walk worthy of salvation in order to receive it. Do you understand what I'm saying? We received salvation as a gift, as grace, and now that we've received it, 
We're called to live in a manner worthy of it. God doesn't say, man, I wish you guys were good enough to be my kids. I wish you were good enough. God says through the blood of Jesus, you are my kids. Now start acting like it. You are my kids. Start acting like it. It's who you are. It's your identity. The proof of our salvation is in the fruit of our salvation. This is huge. The proof of our salvation is in the fruit of our salvation. It's not a magical prayer you prayed. The the proof that you are saved, that Christ is in you, is what Christ in you produces in your life. That's the evidence. Whole book of James is all about this reality. The love of Christ produces change in our lives. And that's the evidence that Christ is in our lives. You simply cannot receive Christ and stay the same. This might be heartbreaking for some of you, but if you know someone who says, yeah, that person received Christ and nothing changed in their life, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. I think I've shared this before. I always wrestled with, man, how how do we give the gospel at an end of a service? How can I be sure that anyone who puts their hand up is 100% saved? Truth is, you won't know until three months later. You won't know. You need a chance to see the fruit that is the proof of salvation. You just can't stay the same if Christ is in you. And speaking of the fruit of our salvation, Tuesday this past week, we had this on our Facebook, marked the 100th anniversary of the death of William Borden. I want to tell you about William Borden, who he was. He's a a hero of mine, and, and you'll soon realize why. William Whiting Borden was born into affluence in Chicago in 1887. An incredibly wealthy family that made an incredible amount of money. They were millionaires before the 1900s. He was the third child of William Borden and Mary DeGama Whiting. His father was the son of a wealthy businessman named Gail Borden, and the Borden family had made their millions producing milk and dairy products and in real estate. After his mother converted to Christianity in 1894, she began taking her son to Chicago Avenue Church, which is now the Moody Church in Chicago. He soon responded to the gospel preaching of Dr. R.A. Torrey, turned to Christ and was baptized. From then on, prayer and Bible study became hallmarks of his life. To to put this in perspective, he was a young teenager when he got saved. And at the age of 13, 14, prayer and Bible study became hallmarks of his life. After graduating from high school at age 16, he traveled to Europe, Africa, and Asia. Borden graduated from Yale in 1909 and later from Princeton Theological Seminary He later decided to become a missionary to the Muslims of northern China. His decision to become a missionary greatly distressed his father, who did not support his decision. In fact, his father informed him that becoming a missionary would remove him from receiving any more of the family's fortune. Undeterred, Borden left for Egypt to start his missionary training. His father only became more steadfast in his opposition to his son's calling, informing him that he would not ever be allowed to even work for the family business if he continued. So Borden continued. At the age of 25, while in Cairo, Borden fell ill and died of cerebral meningitis. Borden bequeathed a million dollars to the China Inland Mission and other Christian agencies. The Borden Memorial Hospital in Langzhou, China, was named after him. After his death, Borden's Bible was found and given to his parents. In it, they found in one place the words, no reserve, and a date placing the note shortly after he renounced his fortune in favor of missions. At a later point, he had written no retreat, dated shortly after his father told him that he would never let him work in the company ever again. Shortly before he died in Egypt, he added the phrase, no regrets. And if you visit the grave of William Borden in Cairo, Egypt, you'll find this on his epitaph. A man in Christ, he arose and forsook all and followed him, kindly affectioned with brotherly love, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, instant in prayer, communicating to the necessity of saints, in honor preferring others. These incredible last two lines. 
apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. And, and that is the part I just can't get over. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. William Borden found the riches of grace that only exist in Christ Jesus. And he, he was so overjoyed and overwhelmed by the love of Jesus that he was compelled to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It wasn't a burden to him. He'd do it all over again. It was the natural response of a man who had been overwhelmed by the love of Christ and had had everything put into rightful perspective. He would have told you, he would have said, I don't understand logically why my father would think that money could possibly compete with the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. When you know Christ, such a comparison becomes illogical. Are you, are you kidding me? You're kidding me? You're trying to compare Christ to money? That's, what? He lived out Philippians 3, 8 through 11. This is one of the core verses of this church where Paul says, Yet indeed I also count all things loss compared to the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What Paul says there, he says, I've seen enough of Jesus to know that comparing anything else to him makes it look like rubbish. He's not saying I, I don't value my family. He's not saying I don't value my spouse. I don't value having a nice house. He's saying just compared to Christ, compared to Christ, they're all rubbish. Compared to him, there's no other comparison that can be made. It's not God is great, these things are good. There's Christ, there's Christ above everything, everything. And if giving all that up means I get more of Christ, I'll do it in a heartbeat. I'll do it in a moment. I'd make that decision 100 times out of 100. Every time, if it means I get Christ. I'll trade comfort for suffering because in suffering I get a small taste of what Jesus went through and that lets me know him more. In a heartbeat, I would do that. In a heartbeat. If it means I get Christ, I'll do it in a heartbeat. I don't, I don't need to think about it. I don't even need to pray about it. I've seen Jesus. I've seen him. And if you'd seen him, Everything I've said would make perfect sense to you. There, there's no comparison to the greatness of knowing Christ. None. None. That's what drove William Borden. And if you're still wrestling with giving control of Christ to your life, if you're still thinking about it, again, I will tell you honestly, you have not seen him. You have not seen him. You haven't seen him if this is a wrestling for you. And today when we worship after this message, pray one thing, that Jesus would reveal himself to you. Pray that one thing. Pray that one thing. He will. And everything I'm telling you will make sense in an instant when you see him, when you see him. To walk in a manner worthy of the gospel means Christ becomes everything. Everything. That is the only response. Everything. That's why in Scripture, there are no casual Christians. There's only disciples. There's only disciples in Scripture. So when we have church and we talk about, man, this group of people are real serious about Jesus. They're disciples. This group, not so much. It's not, there's not two groups in Scripture. There's just one. Are you a disciple? There's only one standard. Is Christ everything? There's not like a buy-in program where Christ can be 50%. He's everything or he's nothing. That's the standard of the word of God. That's the standard. 
You're a child of God. You're not trying to become a child of God. You are a child of God. So live like one. Live like one. Walk like one. Walk worthy of your calling. Verse 2. Paul says that we should act with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering. Long-suffering just means patience. I think it's actually a better word than patience because it better describes it, right? Long-suffering. Be long-suffering. Bearing with one another in love. Here's what I find interesting. Remember that in Matthew, Jesus described himself as gentle and lowly in heart. So Paul is saying once again, he's just saying, just be like Jesus. Be like Jesus to each other. When you realize that nothing Christ has done is the result of anything you've done for him, you can't help but be humble. What are you going to brag about? You were dead in your sins when Christ saved you. You were like, yeah, but um, I mean, I was a really good dead person. You got nothing to brag about. First three chapters of Ephesians all took place while we were dead in our sins. We've got nothing to brag about. Rationally, logically, empirically, we have nothing to brag about. Nothing. How can we not be humble? What in the world do we have to brag about? Nothing. Christ did everything. Our only contribution, our only contribution to this entire process is this. Thank you, Lord. That's it. That's our entire contribution in quotations. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. That's the only thing we're bringing to this process. Be humble. Be gentle with each other. Be patient with each other. Love each other enough to thrive despite your differences. Everything we're called to live out in the Christian life can be found in the example of Christ. How patient is Jesus We see him in the Gospels show incredible patience with a group of disciples. They're living with him every day and they have not connected the dots that he's God. For the first couple of years, raising the dead guy was a really big clue. Really big clue. They they don't get it. Speaking and turning a storm into a sea of glass, that's a pointer. These are the little things you can look out for if you want to know. Is one of my friends maybe God? They didn't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. And how patient is Jesus with you and I? If you were God, would you put up with you? Would you put up with you? I wouldn't put up with uh, Jeff Thompson. If I were God, I'd smite him with a meteor or a fire from heaven or something like that. I'd be creative. But God is so patient with me. He's so patient with me. I wouldn't put up with me. And God is so patient with you. He's so patient with you. The next time you feel like, I've just had enough. I can long suffer, but I can't forever suffer. I'm, I'm out of patience. I'm out of patience. Just remember, remember, how patient is God with you? How patient is God with me? Let's not be hypocrites. Let's not be hypocrites. When we're gentle and patient and kind to each other, it reveals we understand how gentle and patient and kind God has been to us. When we're impatient, when we're not gracious, when we're not kind, It just reveals we we have not connected the dots. We have not understood how gracious God is to us. Verse 3, Paul says, Endeavoring to keep, underline that word keep, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that it says keep the Spirit of unity, not create the Spirit of unity. It doesn't say that we should try and create unity. It says that we should keep it. And the idea is that this unity already exists. Verse 4 continues to explain this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. If you believe in the same Jesus that we do, If you believe in the same God, the same Heavenly Father, you believe in 
biblical baptism, then, then we're family. It doesn't matter what denomination you are. We are family. It's just a fact that Jesus has made, present tense, he has made us one. And often we'll want to plan, in every city all over the world, they want to do, somebody always wants to do a special church unity event. You know, let's, let's get together. We'll sing a bunch of songs. It'll take a really long time to figure out some songs that don't offend somebody, but somehow we'll do it. Okay, we'll just settle for singing all songs that are 100 years old. That's why everybody's happy. So we'll sing some special songs. We'll have a special guest speaker, maybe a drama. We'll do it in a neutral location because, you know, nobody wants to let another church have it at their building. So we'll do this big unity event. We'll get together and talk about how united we are, and then we'll go our separate ways, and somehow, magically, we'll be more unified than we were before. And we think that this is what unity is. You know, I, I, I don't ever call up my extended family and say, you know, guys, I was just thinking, it's been a while. Let's get together for a special Thompson Day. I'm going to do a special teaching about what it means to be a Thompson. We'll have some poems about our Thompsonness, and uh, we'll sing songs about how great it is to be a Thompson. And then we'll go out onto the patio and, and yell to the neighborhood, We are Thompsons! We are Thompsons! We are all Thompsons! Uh, I, don't ever, I don't ever do that. And the reason I don't ever do that is because we are family. We are present tense. And when you just are something, you don't need to prove it to anybody else. You don't need to make a big song and dance about it. You just are. So when it comes to the family of God, this is why Paul says, keep the unity of the Spirit, because it already exists. We just are one. We are family through Christ. It's it's who we are. And so when we interact with other churches and other believers, Paul is just saying, remember that they are your family. They are. So treat them like your family. Let let me actually correct that. Treat them like a loving family. Because for some of you, if I said treat them like family, that would not be a good precedent. Treat them like a loving family would treat family, right? I, I was thinking about that as I was prepping this, that I really need to watch my analogies when I say, you know, the body of Christ is like a family, because there's probably somebody out there thinking, I hate my family. You know, you, you need to find a new analogy. <laughs> so, but it's a loving family is the idea. Treat them like a loving family, because we just are one. Through, through, peop- through Christ, the people in this room are part of your spiritual family. They just are. And we all have crazy uncles and we all have family members we like more than others but we're all family we're all family so treat each other like family paul continues in verse seven but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of christ's gifts you're going to want to write this down jesus christ has given every single one of us gifts for the purpose of doing ministry gifts for the purpose of doing ministry The idea is that we would use these gifts he's given us to serve each other and to do ministry during the week, during our daily lives. They're not only for the benefit of each other, they're for the benefit of a world that needs to be ministered to. And this is is where the family analogy becomes really good again. Imagine you're going camping with your loving, extended family, and and you're, you're putting up a tent and you are just getting so frustrated putting up a tent. You, you make the giant pole and the pole just won't stay together when you try to push it through the tent. And you have Uncle Joe in your family. And everybody knows Uncle Joe is a serious outdoorsman. A savant of campers. And Uncle Joe is there sipping his coffee and you get frustrated and you're thinking, can anybody help me with this? And you know Uncle Joe hears you but he just sits there sipping his coffee. And everybody starts looking at Uncle Joe because everybody's thinking, we know you have this gift. The family could use it right about now. In the context of church, Scripture tells us that God has given us at any moment everything we need in order to be the church. But we can't have any Uncle Joes. We can't have anybody in the body of Christ who says, I have a gift, I just don't want to use it. I'm just going to chill and drink my coffee. You have a gift, even if you don't know what it is yet, that is a blessing to other people if you will use it in the church. And maybe using it in the church is the first step to using it outside the church and seeing God use you to minister to people. If that's you today, you're you're not serving in some way, 
I want to tell you, don't serve because it's like, we need the help or we're going to die. Serve because we're family. You have the ability to be a blessing to somebody. There is no feeling in the world like knowing God is using you to bless somebody else. Just check the box on the back of your connection card if that's you and you're not serving. Don't leave today without doing that. And when we all use our gifts, nobody's overloaded, nobody's overburdened, nobody's stressed because all the gifts are being used and everything's taken care of. We all do our part. If you're hoarding your gift, we need you. We need you. God has designed us to need you. Going all the way back to what we said at the very beginning of this message, if serving seems like a huge burden to you, if you're like, oh, seriously, every second Sunday for three hours, oh, gosh. If that's what's going on inside of you right now, if you're thinking like, I should have gone to the lake like I was thinking about doing this one. Can't believe they're talking about serving again. Then I want to encourage you. It's probably been a while since you just sat with Jesus. Since you just sat with him. If it seems like a burden, let me tell you what I know. I know your relationship with Jesus isn't all that kicking right now. I know that with 100% consistency. Because when you're overwhelmed by the love of Christ, what goes through your head is if that's what Jesus wants me to do, man, I'm there. I'm there. And it's not a burden. It's not a burden. Because as I empty myself, Christ fills me up again. But maybe today you need to just have some time sitting in the presence of God and remembering how much Jesus loves you. Now this is where it gets real interesting. This is, this is one of my favorite things to teach on. Everybody in this room, you, you're about to probably learn some things you've never heard before about the Bible. Some of you are going, cool. Some of you are thinking, I knew this was going to get weird. But, but it's, it's, all, it's all on the up and up. Just hang with me, okay? I knew this was a cult. You know, just hang with me. And it's not going to get that weird. It's really interesting. Paul quotes Psalm 68, 18 in verse 8. This is what he says. Therefore he says, when he, speaking of Jesus, ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. We're going to break this down. Paul is telling us when Jesus gave all these gifts to people. After Christ was crucified, before he ascended into heaven, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth which are referred to as Hades. Hades. Hades is what's also referred to as hell. Hades is simply the place of the dead. During the three days that his body was in the tomb, before he ascended into heaven, Jesus descended into hell, Hades, the place of the dead. Now think about this. Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins and made a way for us to be reconciled to God. So before that happened, mankind was not at peace with God. Mankind was not reconciled with God. We know from Scripture that even before the cross, it was possible for people to be saved. We see that in the Old Testament. They were saved the same way we are, by faith. But they were saved by faith in a coming Messiah a coming Savior. They were saved by belief in the prophecies that God would make a way for them to be saved. We are saved by belief in the Savior, the Messiah that God has sent, Jesus Christ. But they lived before Christ came to the earth, so they were saved by belief in the Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior that would come, the belief that God would make a way. But those Old Testament believers could not access the presence of God. They could not go to be with God because Christ had not died yet for their sins. So what happened to them? What happened to them? Jesus tells a parable, a story in Luke 16. And in this parable, we find two men in this dimension, this place known as Hades, the place of the dead. And we find that everyone who died before the cross, went to Hades, this place, Hades. But these two men are on very different sides of Hades. One side is the side of torment. 
and the other side is described as paradise. So what you need to do in your mind is you need to go away from assuming that hell and Hades is the lake of fire. It's not the lake of fire. It is the place of the dead is what it is. It's a dimension And there are two sides to it. One is torment. One is described as paradise. The paradise side is called the bosom of Abraham, which I know sounds like a shady Old Testament nightclub. But the the idea is that it was a place of comfort where Abraham was. It's called the bosom of Abraham. I laugh every time I say it, revealing the fact that, you know, there's some stuff that you just never stop finding funny. Uh, Especially if you're a dude. And... um, This was a place of comfort where Abraham was. Abraham is known as the father of the faith. It was a place far better than anything else on this earth. Anything else on this earth. But it was still outside of the presence of God. And Abraham was there constantly encouraging the other saints saying, Hey, we're not going to be here forever. God will keep his promises. God will make a way. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. And in this parable, the rich man on the tormenting side of Hades begs Abraham. He yells to Abraham on the other side of Hades. He says, hey, there's, there's a beggar there that I used to know. Will you send him across to me with just a drop of water? I'm dying here. I'm in torment. And Abraham says, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there Passed to us. So there is this divide in Hades, and nobody on the tormenting side can cross over to paradise. Nobody in paradise can cross over to the tormenting side. Two compartments in Hades. Every believer who died before the cross went to paradise, Abraham's bosom, the good side of Hades. And after Jesus died, that is where he went. And he led the Old Testament believers up into heaven where they are today. That's why in Revelation 1.18, we hear Jesus say, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. And the idea is that they were in a form, even though it was paradise, they were imprisoned there until Jesus made a way for their sins to be paid for and them to go to be in heaven. So Jesus shows up during those three days and he has the metaphorical keys of Hades. And I can't even imagine what that is like down there the day that Jesus shows up and he says, let's go, let's go. And he leads them up into heaven, leads them up into heaven. That's also why on the cross, Jesus tells the other crucified thief who believes in him, today you will be with me in paradise, paradise. He went with Jesus when he went to go and get him. During the three days he was in the tomb, Jesus descended into Hades, released all the saints who were captive in paradise, Abraham's bosom, and led them up to heaven. And so that part of Hades, paradise, is now completely empty. It's completely empty. There's nobody there. That's why Paul tells us to be absent from the body now is to be present with the Lord. When we die, we go straight to be with Jesus. Because the cross has made a way for that to happen. To be absent from the body for us is to be present with the Lord. No waiting period. No club med in Hades or anything like that. We go straight to be with the Lord. Those who die today and do not believe in Jesus Christ go immediately to the tormenting side of Hades to await what Scripture calls the great white throne judgment. That is the day at the end of all time When everyone who has ever lived but has not believed upon Jesus Christ as their Savior will stand before the Lord and be judged. By refusing to accept the Father's gift of salvation, His gift of grace, His gift of mercy, they have chosen to be judged based on their own righteousness, their own goodness, rather than the righteousness of Christ. They've made that choice, and that's what it all comes down to. What is the standard by which they will be judged? Being a good person? Jesus said, no one is good but one. That is God. The books will be opened. Video screen will be rolled out and everything will be put on display. Nothing will be hidden. You think you're a good person? Let's take a look. Every thought, every sin, all on display. All right there. 
inevitably every person who chooses to be judged based on their own goodness will be found lacking and their name will not be found written in the Lamb's book of life. The Bible tells us that those people do not go back to Hades. They go to a place called Gehenna. That is the lake of fire. That is what the Bible calls the second death. It's total darkness. It's eternal pain. It's complete separation from God. And it never ends. And, and if that scares you, it should. It should. Because that's where we're born heading. That's our default destination. But Christ in his grace intervened and saved us. He intervened and saved us from where we were going. This is why the Bible says again and again and again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because when you understand the reality of your situation, when you understand where you're headed, it causes you to say, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And suddenly you're open to Jesus revealing himself to you, to Jesus saying, I've made a way. That fear causes you to get on your knees and cry out to Jesus, save me, save me. And that is the wisest thing any of us could ever do in our entire lives. It is the wisest thing we could ever do. A fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And praise Jesus, we've been saved, amen? Praise Jesus. Here's what's amazing about Jesus. Three days after he's been murdered, he has an opportunity to give something to mankind. What would you give to mankind? If it was me, I'd say, I've got something for you. I've got something special for you. I've got a brand new version of wrath. And then after that, I'm going to share with you uh, just something I've been working on. It's a little bit more wrath. Wrath, 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 wrath. Enjoy, enjoy. That's what you get for murdering the Son of God. Bad choice on your part. Bad choice. But that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. Jesus is found giving gifts to men. Giving gifts to men. What a Savior he is. There's no one like Jesus. 